Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Allison LeClaire on the show. Allison made her first loaf of bread in 2008 while studying specialty cake baking. Almost 10 years later, and still thinking fondly of that first Pullman loaf, she began keeping a sourdough starter and casually baking with it in 2017. It wasn't long before she realized that baking bread for people was a very cool way to spend her time. She continued to bake for her community while transitioning to a new city in 2020, where she left her moving boxes full of baking supplies labeled the bread room sitting around long enough that there was no choice but to call her workspace the bread room bakery. Allison resides in a 100-plus-year-old house in the very charming part of Fresno, California, with a porch just big enough for a few dozen loaves of bread to be picked up by friends and neighbors every week. To her, baking bread as an occupation feels like commitment to a lifelong discovery of people, relationships, and of the romance of food that we can all be partaking in a bit more often than we do. She hopes to offer those moments of discovery to everyone she connects with through the bread room. It was a joy to talk to Allison. We get into all the different dynamics and aspects of baking, and I know you'll love this podcast. Please enjoy my conversation with Allison LeClaire, and Baker will take us there. To elevate guests, politics, religion, culture, art, music, show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. Allison, where do you like to eat in Fresno? So probably heard of it taco bell is top of the list for oh me, really which, um is probably i'll get fired for saying this from the whole bread community <laughs> but besides that we really kind of operate in this like circle right around our house and so we have moto deli just down the street which we love and can be great for so many different you know meetups meals all of that i kind of orbit that alchemist coffee we really like mochuelo for like a date night so. I haven't been to Alchemist yet. So what it looks interesting and different than, you know, High Top before it. What 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 do they do there that you like? Yeah. Yeah, so I know not as much about it as I could. I know that the the men the food menu is it's got some good breads, it's got some good basic kind of simple breakfast options. Coffee's great. I mean, honestly, that's not I feel like I could know a lot more about it right now. I know some friends who love it a lot and would have a lot more to say about it. Okay. Wonderful. Let's uh, go ahead and jump into all things bread. We're going to start with some kind of origin story stuff to to get started. Was baking a part of your childhood? Not necessarily, no. Okay. Art was. It was a really creative house. So it, that's kind of the what led me to bread in the end. Okay. But, uh, yeah. Can you make a connection for us? Yeah. I grew up in a very creative household, wanted to do something in the arts, kind of chose this avenue of cake decorating and specialty cake making, went to school for it. Our first module was on bread, which I loved and did really well in and had this kind of meaningful, special connection with more than any of the other modules that we went through. And I kind of just tucked that aside, thought this isn't what I'm here for, paused 10 years of, of bread baking and then picked it up with sourdough in 2017 just for home baking, found that when you make bread, people really want bread. And so sharing it with friends, family, I didn't go into it expecting to start a business at all. I started sharing it with friends, started kind of slowly growing it, started helping instruct. I had a friend, a bread partner in San Jose, 
where I was at the time. And we would kind of teach these bread making classes. And then we went to a farmer's market and then we started doing subscription. And then when I moved to Fresno a couple of years ago, I kept up with the parts that I loved about it, which is baking regularly for people very close um, in my neighborhood. Okay. You kind of already touched on this kind of truncated learning process you had where you had different phases. Is is bread making something that you really just learn by doing or is there kind of like, or is it a mixture of the practical and the theoretical? Oh man. I mean, definitely both, but I would say sourdough on its own, you just have to get through dozens, hundreds, thousands of loaves to it's, it's alive. It's constantly changing. It took months and months to feel like I was at a place where I could predict what my outcome was going to be, where I could identify the variables that affected the outcome. It's a constant learning process. I'm still there. I would say, yeah, it's, it's very much you just, you just keep at it. It's different. It's definitely different than other baking, which is why I was quite pleased to leave behind cake making, which is very scientific, and pick up this more kind of tactile, sensory experience that feels a little bit more like exploratory cooking than it would like really scientific baking. Interesting, because there is this kind of broad generalization that baking is all science, uh, but it seems like you're saying it's more nuanced within the subdivisions of the category. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would say so. I know there, like in you know, early COVID years, there was this kind of really amazing wave of people who were like in the technology world who started picking up bread baking and made it this very interesting scientific process. You know, people were kind of out, put out of their normal work and they were picking up these hobbies. And so this little sector of people was making it something that was very science focused and interesting. And that was amazing. But I think you can approach it from so many different angles. And I find it much more of a sensory learning process. It's a lot more visual. It's a lot more feel and smell. And the science is all there and is all happening. But I'm getting by without having a complete understanding of all of that, really. Yeah. And it seems like there's so many confounding variables. I mean, I bake sourdough bread occasionally. And I can have the same measurements, this you know, seemingly the same environment, but get totally different outcomes. And it seems yeah. like there's so many confounding variables, like the temperature of your room, you know, yeah. uh, how well you sift your flour or what, whatever, you yeah. know, that is, is really hard to kind of identify, well, what went differently this time? Or how did I go wrong, quote unquote? Let's, let's jump into some very specific bread making questions to start, though. Um, what's your favorite non-white bleached flour to use? Like if you couldn't use non-white bleached flour, what would you use? Favorite non-white? Well, I don't use bleached flour. I so Central Milling is the brand that I love. They, if, as far as I know, they are the Kirkland brand at Costco. It's okay. a pack of two ten-pound bags. I highly recommend that. Quality is great. Organic flour in general. The that web, the whole website, the whole brand, Central Milling has a lot to offer. So if you're going to kind of stick with one thing that's going to cover a lot of bases, that's a really good place to start. Highly accessible, especially if you're talking about driving to Costco and picking up, you know, a, a bag of flour in a larger quantity than a five pound bag. King Arthur Flour is another beautiful brand. I really like their whole wheat. It's a little bit less finely ground. And I love how that shows up in a loaf. There's Bob's Red Mill is another good one. There's some really good ones that you can get at grocery stores. I was going to ask you later, but let's just do it now. Is is the is the premium you pay for King Arthur worth it to you? 
I, those bags at Whole Foods and you're like, right. wait a second. Right. <laughs> I will tell you, I mean, I think it's great flour. I will tell you that I was buying it. If I see it on sale back when I was doing a smaller scale of baking, when it was on sale, I would buy it. When it was not, I would not. So the next one I have for you is salt. What do you think the best salt you should use for baking and is diamond crystal overrated? Ooh, so I use just a good old sea salt. Oftentimes I get it at Costco. Again, it's a Kirkland sea salt brand. Diamond sea salt, I, act, I mean, it's super common. I don't use it. I haven't used it. So can't say, can't speak to quality of that. I would say if we're talking something besides just bread, I really like Malden, kind of the flakier sea salt. I'll use that sometimes on top of pastries or cookies. That's a great salt. Salting in general is a, is a really great thing to look into and to learn about, which I learned from Samin Nosrat. She does the salt, fat, acid, heat book and series and has some really great information on salt in there. Do you err on the side of maybe a little more salt than less salt or, or what's your approach? I do in everything. In bread, it's slightly more than maybe I've seen in cookbooks. So I think common for like a, a solid two pound loaf, which is like 500 grams of flour, it would be 10 grams of salt. And I do anywhere between like 11 and 12. If I'm adding a salty ingredient like olives, then I'm going to step back just slightly from 10 grams and do nine and a half. It's just because it's like, it's a saltiness and that's great, but it's really bringing out flavor more than anything. And in a good loaf of bread, which is simple, but can have different notes of flavors and be quite complex if those flavors are brought out, salting is really important. Yeah, and it feels like people tend to think of like, oh, I just don't want it to be too salty. But I, I, I don't think the the trade-off of, you know, salt and flavor is is present in people's minds that it's right. the salt that makes the flavor. And so right. connecting those dots for people. And I think you see that a lot when you go to restaurants and you feel like there's a lot of salt in this food. It's like, well, it's because they want you to taste it, right? Yeah. So can you tell the difference when you're using purified or treated water versus just tap water and bread? No, I once heard someone say that it's better to use tap water because it has more in it that's going to bring out more activity in your dough. That's what I use. I straight from the tap. I for a while was using purified and don't know that I noticed a difference in it. I think and you could call so the minerals in the tap water is something that creates more flavor or creates yeah, could or creates more activity, more bacteria because you're getting your bacteria and your yeast from everything in the sourdough process. And that's such an important part of, you know, sourdough, you're choosing all of those natural bacteria and yeast versus this commercial one strand of baker's yeast. So the presence of all of that creates this environment that makes widely varying loaves of sourdough, depending on all of the different, you know, variables that you're using and working with. Is in some respects just, you know, dry active or instant yeast underrated just because there's so much emphasis on sourdough starter these days? I think in general, um, bread making, whether you're using sourdough or a um, commercial yeast is a really beautiful process. And sourdough can deter people. It, it's an investment. It takes time. It's complex. Um, you can experience the same kind of rhythmic process of making bread by doing just a commercial yeast. And so I would say it's underrated in that sense. It's not the, you know, we're not going to demonize it as something that we should never use. But when I visit the process of making bread, it's very much in intertwined with this kind of length lengthy rhythmic, you know, very sensory forward experience, which requires all of that time and 
being tuned in with the dough in a way that you can do maybe more, or I can do more easily with sourdough than I can with uh, a loaf that's meant to be done a lot quicker. And yeah, are there some recipes where you would maybe opt for yeast or baking powder or baking some kind of leavener that's different than sourdough? Like recently, I I was in uh, Northern California and I had a chocolate chip cookie that used uh, mm -hmm. sourdough in it, and I was it just seemed kind of I mean it tasted I enjoyed the taste, but it seemed like seemed like a lot of work for a cookie in, mm, yeah. in that respect. Do you yeah. think there, there's a limit with the sourdough starter? I think there is, it, again, it's going to come, you know, it's going to come down to your goal. There's a, definitely a time and a place and in my own baking experience where I would use both. Everything I make has sourdough starter in it. So I make a sourdough chocolate chip cookie, but it also is going to have baking soda because when you're working with an enriched dough or batter, that's going to have eggs, butter, other fats, and really weigh it down. It's quite beneficial to have, you know, a second aging or rising agent. And so it would be baking soda with cookies, a more enriched dough. I would use like I would use sourdough and I would use a commercial yeast when making brioche or something like that, where you want a lightness you're creating or you're replicating a, a bread that's already in existence you don't need to turn every single thing into this sourdough product but there's i think a fine line where you can really play with the flavors and the digestibility of sourdough and the kind of traditional methods of making non-sourdough breads is that true too when you're making like a country loaf, but you're adding like fruit or nuts or just something into it and you want that to be evenly distributed? Do you also add an, an additional leavening agent? I don't. It, for me, that's distributed through the process of the folding it and the process of time and letting it rise properly. Some people might, but I don't. Okay. Well, how do you ensure that it's evenly distributed throughout the loaf? So if I'm adding, let's say cinnamon raisin is a regular. So raisins are heavy. I soak them in water. So they're even heavier. I'm going to add those in three different increments in the dough. I'll add it in one fold, which is when you're, you know, just physically picking up folding the dough, which is building the strength in to hold your loaf's shape better. I'll add it in once, 30 minutes later, I'll return. I'll add a second batch in and I'll do another fold. So it's manually kind of rotating those inclusions throughout your entire dough. And if you've done that well, and if it's got strength, then it's going to hold up as it bakes. Okay. And this is kind of a softball question, but can you explain to people why they should use weight measurements as opposed to volumetric? Oh, I would say, I mean, the reason I learned it is because that's what all the recipes use. So it's, it's much more easy to have accuracy. You don't have to, I mean, all sourdough recipes that I'm finding are in grams. Having yeah. a scale with grams is, it's just easy. It's, it's the universal thing. I wish that we did more of that. Yeah, it's wonderful. I use my coffee scale to weigh my stuff, oh. and it has it has it to the hundredth, which is amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. probably it's probably a little too ever, but there. but I enjoy it. Do do the shapes of loaves matter for the taste of bread? And what's your favorite shape? Good question. I think everything on a very subtle scale is going to matter. I can't say that you know if I'm pulling out a round versus like a, a bowl versus a more elongated loaf that I'm going to notice particularly what it is that I'm enjoying differently. But I know that when we're talking sourdough, like the, the bursts of flavor that are coming from, it's like they're deposited in the holes while, while the mixing process is happening. And that's like where your little flavor bubbles are coming. And so the process of the, the dough rising and the shaping of it is 
is going to have an effect on on what the mouth feel is on what the flavor that you're taking from it is i work a lot with like a more rustic loaf i want versus like in a pan although i do offer more sandwich style pan loaves i really can appreciate the crunchy exterior that you're getting from just a free form loaf that's plopped in the oven and comes out crunchy on the outside and soft and tender on the inside yeah that that would be my preference anything that would be more of a free form rustic loaf but i on the same hand, I use I can use the same recipe recipe kind of interchangeably throughout different forms. It will have different different mouth feels. It will have different flavors show up depending on how if whether it's a pan loaf or a, a free form loaf. How long does your what's I don't know how to describe the sound that crackling sound when you have a fresh loaf and you mm-hmm. kind of give it a little squeeze? How long does that typically last? That will last, that'll last a couple hours where it's crunchy. I'll, I'll bake in the morning, I'll package throughout the day. And, you know, as I'm setting loaves up for people to pick up, oftentimes I'm still getting that crunch from it. And then by the end of the day, it's usually, I, I guess the thing that works in my favor or our favor, if we're slicing up sourdough loaves, which can be kind of tricky, you wait about a day or half a day and the loaf's going to soften just a bit and the crust is going to get easier to cut through. So there's nothing like a fresh couple hour old crunchy sourdough loaf. But yes. also that can be re-brought back to life quite quickly just by rushing it under some water real quick and then putting it in the oven and it'll have that light crisp again to it. Okay. So let's talk about ovens for a second. We know that ovens are often unreliable, particularly the, the temperature that's displayed. Yeah. How do you deal with the variability that ovens produce in order to get consistent loaves? Yeah, the consistency comes from staying with the same oven for me right now. So I've got a bread oven. I don't use my home oven. I I use the Rothko, which is a brand that I really like. Um, Temperature, I've got a couple of thermometers in there and the temperature reading is not always accurate, as you say. Um, But after working with it, you know, for a couple of weeks or months, you just kind of determine what temperatures work for you. It has to be less of a written down specific recipe. Someone else might do according to their own oven and write down their times and temperatures, and it's not going to work for me. And so I have to go through that on my own, just as I had to do with my oven that I initially learned on at a house that was not this one. And then I had to do at this house when we moved here. And then I've had to do with my bread oven when that came in. So they definitely vary and you just have to look at it not as a formula to follow, but more of a, I don't know, process to uncover of what your breads are going to need. And it's going to come with a lot of burnt bottoms, which is honestly still fine. Edible. Exactly. And, you know, there's lots of ways to repurpose bread as well. I love uh, some of my failed loaves become French toast. Can you speak to uh, some of the signs Let's say you're baking a sourdough loaf. It's one of your first ones and you pull it out of the oven. It looks baked, but you don't really know until you cut into it and you see the crumb. Is there some outward signs that you know you've had success with your loaf? That it's baked or that it's going to be a nicely done loaf? That it's a nicely done loaf. Okay. So initially I'll tell early on by the rise of it. I open up my oven about halfway through. I release the steam. And so then I can get a glimpse of, hey, is my loaf holding its shape? Did I build the right amount of structure? Is it is it tall enough? Is it not oozing into the other loaves? Which all of this still happens and happened last week. I had larger loaves that were proved really nicely, but they all kind of formed this batch bake because the oven is only so big and you can only squeeze so many next to each other. But definitely going to look for the rise, going to look for the blistery sides. 
I tend to bake darker. And so there's always this, this assurance that it's going to be baked well on the inside. It's going to be finished. And then the added color comes with this like depth of flavor that I really enjoy. I, I would say that's one of the things that young bakers struggle with is that mm -hmm. they look at sourdough on Instagram and it has this really dark look and they make their first loaf and it just looks like this, you know, light beige, yeah. you know, kind of not a child's loaf, but just something that like you feel like, oh, how, how do I aspire to those beautiful dark loaves that I see all over social yeah. media? What would you say to them? I mean, color is going to be partly preference. Although I do relate to looking at lighter loaves and associating that with younger baking, you know, whether that's true or not. I think in general, people can be afraid of the length of time that sourdough requires, both in proofing, which is going to probably be the, the biggest thing that any new baker should consider is the time that they're proofing their sourdough probably needs to go far beyond what they're actually doing. The the most common mistake is going to be underproofed, which is going to affect quite a bit, including the darkness. Because when you have an underproofed or well-proofed or an overproofed loaf, the the heat's going to color it in different ways, unevenly or quicker to burn. So when you are talking about then getting it into the oven, yeah, we're, we can be afraid of baking of a darker bake, a more burnished look. And so I think testing the the times that we're allowing them in the oven could be really great. And often actually with like, so often bakers are using Dutch ovens. Is that what they're called? It's been a while yeah. since I've used it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and they can have this habit of burning the bottoms of the, the ovens can, like they're just not, they don't always work towards keeping the bottoms, you know, perfectly done. But when you then burn a little bit of the top, it totally looks like it's on purpose. So lean into the darkness that's happening there. Just let it go a little bit longer and see what happens. Mm. And on that note, talking about proving, and can you talk about baking in Fresno, which is with, you know, really hot summers, winters, and how that affects your process? Yeah, it's hugely affects my process. And it's amazing because it's, there are two very different seasons with baking and I, I want, I need both of them. There needs to be the summer, which is fast paced. I can work from 6am to noon and it's kind of rushed the whole time, but then I can be done. And in the winter, colder temps, sourdough is going to move slower and it could be, you know, 8am to 8pm. And so this kind of back and forth of having really long, more kind of intentional, relaxing work days versus then several months of more intense, just faster moving the back and forth feels really good to me, but it's always going to come with a month or so of adjusting every every new season. It's, you know, oh, I'm forgetting that my dough is proving faster, which means if I didn't set my fridge temperature for this overnight proof to the coldest setting, then everything's overproving in April or May, whereas in February, it would have been to the perfect proof. So it's kind of constantly always changing these variables and relearning every couple months this transition period, and then you get comfortable with it and it works well. And then the seasons are changed again. So it's always moving. One of my favorite kind of, I guess he's online food person, but he writes cookbooks as well as Kinji Lopez. What's his last name? I'm forgetting his last name. Kinji Lopez Alt. Anyway, so he, he just did a video for like New York Times cooking where he was making like crispy potatoes or something. Mm -hmm. And what stuck out to me about the video is that 
his recipe didn't work for part of the video and the, the potatoes got stuck mm -hmm. and he kept it and then described like what he does when that happens, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I love the kind of truth and advertising of like people showing you that it doesn't always work and like what to do in those situations. So what yeah. do you do with a bad loaf? Oh gosh. Well, depends. So a bad loaf, like a bad loaf tastes good. Almost always. I would say if you forgot salt, then no, it's inedible. And I've done that and it is truly inedible. But besides that, a, a loaf that, especially beginners who are wanting to achieve a certain result, a loaf that you would label as bad is a delicious loaf that anybody is going to accept from you. And so we, we either eat them, I share them with neighbors. I like how you mentioned French toast. You can disguise a kind of silly loaf as a lot of other things. You can make breadcrumbs. I have chickens and my chickens love my, you know, quote unquote, bad loaves. My dog does. <laughs> yeah. So there's, that's really a question that depends on what went wrong and, yeah. and what your expectation for the outcome was. Yeah. The salt thing is, is the killer. You can't, <laughs> there's no, there's no way out of that black hole. All right. So two more questions before we go to a next section. Um, how deep do you have to cut into your dough to make your design so visible? This is something mm -hmm. I personally struggle with. My, my <laughs> the sides of the top of my loaves look terrible. So now mm -hmm. I just kind of do like a simple cross yeah. on the top of it because, you know, I, I'm here to eat, not here to look. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, but I, I do feel like for people, that is an important thing in the kind of yeah. the universe that we live in, you know, showing off what you've done. So can you talk about your approach? Yeah, um, I would say definitely a rotation of blades is important because, you know, depending on how far you're cutting in, like that's, that is going to matter. But the sharpness of your blade is what I find to be even more important. After maybe a month or two, I'm noticing my lobes aren't opening up quite as much. So then that's time to rotate my razor blade thingy. But I would say like for my main cut, I might go in a quarter of an inch possibly. And then if I'm ever doing fine detail work, which is going to be really simple because when you're making lots of loaves, like you said, you're not, you know, the I don't want the impact of my loaf to be this fancy design score that I've done. There's so many more elements to it that I really want to be captured all at once. Um, and so for fine detail work, you just hardly kind of break the surface. And even the way that I score it depends on what the loaf is feeling like. If I've created this loaf and it's obviously needing to be rushed into the oven, it's overproofed, it's large and it's airy, I'm not going to score that much. And if I'm really feeling brave, I'm not going to score it at all. I'm going to let it bust open however it wants to, because creating a bigger score is creating this big deflation of what you've built up sort of. So with the different ways that I'm scoring, it's probably generally a, a quarter inch into the dough for like a nice long straight score, or even like a, like you say, it's an X at the top or like a circle around the top for my round loaves. What's your favorite kind of butter to spread on your bread? Kerrygold. Mm. Salted. Actually, Costco has their Kirkland. I Apparently, I'm here for Costco today. Yeah, um, I love the Costco <laughs> grass-fed butter too. That's my favorite. <laughs> Good. I mean, it's cheaper than Kerrygold. It, it's got to be Kerrygold repackaged. I don't know how they do that. It's it's great. I would say if you're a Costco member, that's a good one. And then even like a little bit of extra salt on top for, again, you know, add, upping the salt on some of these things really helps. It's a very nice, simple bread and butter, perfect flavor. We're definitely getting Costco kickbacks for this podcast. So, <laughs> all right. 
let's we're going to jump into my favorite section which is called overrated versus underrated i'm going to throw a bunch of things at you tell me whether you think they're over or underrated okay uh, first one's a person paul hollywood over or underrated Oh my gosh. I don't know what people think about him. I would say overrated. I don't have fond feelings for him. Okay. Can you explain why? Okay. I mean, no, that's just my, he seems like a little, like I wouldn't want to interact with him, but I'm sure he's a fantastic baker, chef, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Just not a pleasant, not as pleasant that from what I've watched of all of the great British baking show. <laughs> yeah. Cause he, cause he kind of, I mean, obviously it's a competition show, so he's going to be, he's going to, he's going to pick at people's stuff, yeah. but it, 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 it seems like he's just got a very singular approach or a singular vision of what baking is, and it's not as, uh, you know, as inclusive as it could be, maybe. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. <laughs> All right. The standard wedding registry KitchenAid stand mixer, over or underrated? I would say that's well rated. <laughs> I think okay. it's a good one. I started, I do a larger size of, I had a larger size of that version. But it's but a it's good 30. There, there isn't another one that you would say this is a preferred one. No, I think there are definitely other ones that are great. Cuisinart is a good one. Right now I have, I mean, when you're upping the size, you, you have different options. So right now mine is neither of those and not one that I can even recall the brand of. I think mixers can be... I think you can go a lot of ways with mixers. It's not my most important device in my in my room or in my kitchen right now. Okay. Next one. Tartines country loaf. Oh, I would I don't know if it's underrated because I think everybody should, thinks highly of. I think it's fantastic and I think it's really amazing. His the Tartine book is a really amazing resource. Yeah, I think what is the book just Tartine, I think. Um is it Tartine Brand? Yeah. Yeah. I'll find it. Add the links. Okay. The next one, I think I've got the name right, but I think it has different names and it, I see this advertised to me all the time. Those cast iron bread pans, I think they're called challengers. They're like big ones with the handles, people bake inside of them. It's kind of like, seems like it's an alternative to the Dutch oven approach. What do you think mm -hmm. of those? I would, I've never used one generally overrated maybe. I mean, I don't know if I can say that since I haven't used it, but I use a large Dutch oven, which is fantastic, easily accessible cheaper i love it it's it's great okay yeah it seems like they're there's a little bit of a premium because they're fashionable yeah perhaps. yeah okay kneading by hand is that overrated should we just be using stand mixers most of the time i don't all my loaves are by hand really okay um, yeah it which is not always what i prefer it's tiring no kneading by hand highly 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 underrated it is an incredible experience it's sensory it's spiritual it's it's something that everybody should do, even if they're at the point of making bread in, you know, mixing size capacities or, or whatever. It's something really amazing. Okay. Is there, is there beyond just like maybe the spiritual effect? Is there something that comes out of it different for in the end product? From I think your... it's the, the learning and experience that you get with bread, maybe more than the outcome. I think the outcome can be incredible with a mixer and there's maybe ways that that could be more favorable. But if you're learning bread and if you're learning your dough and you're learning the cues of when you're making your next move, when it's going to be finished, et cetera, et cetera, hand kneading is the way to start all of that. Okay. Next one, bread machines. These were part of my childhood. Same part of my childhood, maybe in a small way. We didn't use it much. Wouldn't recommend it. Okay. I would say, I guess, overrated. Yeah, I, I I don't even really understand. I mean, are are they essentially just ovens? I mean, I, I was well, a child. I was mixing, 
Yeah, I as far from what I understand, it's it's mixing it and then it's acting as a proofer. It's letting it rise and then it's do they bake them too? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe I changed my mind. I'm just gonna get you know three or four dozen little tiny bread bakers, or bread mixers, and and put them in my room, and I'll be done. <laughs> okay, next one. Using ancient grains. Using ancient grains is. It's both. The flavor is amazing. The quality that you're getting is amazing. The connection to what bread making once was can be really amazing. I have maybe complicated feelings with over and underrated because we're also considering accessibility to things or privilege with, you know, using certain ingredients in your breads. So I would say it's something, I would say it's not underrated. Mm. Okay. not something that every baker is going to experience regularly or use well. They can be complicated and tricky in the same way that they add amazing flavor. They're going to change the way that you're working with your dough. And so that's a whole nother learning process, but an interesting journey to go down. Okay. All right. Proving drawers. Should we invest in those? No, no, that's a clear for me. That's overrated. Put it in your oven with the light on. If you live in Fresno, Put it in in your kitchen when it's 100 degrees outside. Um, now you just suggest there's a lot of ways using warm water to start can really affect your rice. So there's a lot of ways to get what you want without having to have a proving drawer. Okay, here's some rapid fire, and these are just either ors. Okay. Uh, spelt or rye? Spelt. Okay. Croissant or bagel? <gasps> bagel. Oh, okay. Now you need maybe to def defend that one a little bit. Explain why. Have you ever had a bagel? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, that's one of my top foods. Like this was an unfair question going. Croissants are incredible. Bagels, the things that you can put on bagels, mm -hmm. the, the feel, the, like the flavor, like a croissant is beautiful and dainty and has, you know, this amazing flake and that's great. But a bagel, like I just want the breads that are that you can like maybe throw and they'll like be fine you know mm. they're not gonna feel a little bit fragile i had i had our local rabbi on the show a long time ago and he was convinced that there's not a single real bagel in fresno and i i i, I thought that that was a little bit ridiculous but i get his point that it's you know there's bang there's bagels and then there's uh, pastries so but that's 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 a conversation for a different time french rolling pin or the classic is the French the one with the tapered ends? Yes. I have, I prefer the classic. I have both. Okay. Next one. Galette. Wait, hold on. Sorry. We go have ahead. to go back. Are, when we say classic, when we say classic rolling pin, are we talking about the kind with the wobbly handles? Like, the, you know, the yeah, yeah, the handles on the end and then you just kind of, you know. No. Okay. So what I have is a handle list, just okay. a pole that's like, oh, okay. Thick, it, so it's more like a French rolling pin, but it's not tapered at the end. Okay. And I prefer that. And then, so if that's not the option, I would choose French and then I would choose classic with the wobbly handles as last. I appreciate your specificity <laughs> hierarchy. Thank yeah, you. I, didn't, I couldn't get that wrong. I didn't want yeah, to be like, yeah. right, oh. next, next one, galette or pie? Galette, 100%. Why? The ratio of crust to inside. I don't like pies, to be honest. Yeah. Scone or muffin? I know this is rapid fire. I mean, I don't know. I don't love scone or muffins. Okay. So I, make, I make biscuits that people compare to scones, but they're actually made with like the ratio of a biscuit versus a scone. I don't like dryness of scones and muffins. I just think of like banana brand muffins and those are not, maybe muffins, maybe muffins. Okay. Last one, cronuts or donuts? I just love that there's deep thought about this question. I do appreciate no, it. 
I've never thought of this before. I've had both. Yes, of course. Cronuts were, it was great. It was delicious. And if we're talking now about liking croissants, which I do, then a Krona is a fun way to have those two combined. But a, I'm not the kind of person that's going to go out of my way to get a kind of trendier version of this food product. So I'm going to go and I'm going to go the, to the donut shop, you know, and get whatever's there. If there's a cronut there and a crumb donut, I'm going to choose a crumb donut. Mm. If there's, you know, a Krona and a bunch of glazed, I might choose the Krona. Fair enough. All right. Well, we've got one more section before we wrap up with books. And this is kind of a business related questions. Did you develop a business plan as you were beginning to sell loaves? Or was this something that just kind of happened organically and the business model was developed kind of ad hoc to meet your needs? Yeah, it's exactly the second one, which we can't reveal too much of to the public because they're going to think I don't know what I'm doing. But no, I just have been taking it one step at a time. Uh, my skill was in bread and my interest was in bread. And like I said, in the beginning, I started this as a, a, a personal project for myself just to make bread and for people. And then it was a lot more of other people leading it and saying, do you know, now sell me bread. Now I have a table at the farmer's market. Can you bring stuff here now do this? And I kind of just did all of those things and then have really, yeah, I've really had to like be intentional and face all of the fears of doing all of the other business planning part of it. Not yeah. my favorite. Yeah, it's complicated. And on that note, how did you think, or how do you think about pricing loaves? One of my kind of beliefs is that most food operators do not price their food high enough mm-hmm. uh, or the labor, the skill, yeah. the education, you know, yeah. not, to get, not to get sappy, but like the love in what they do, like they yeah. underprice their food constantly. Yeah. How do you think about how you, or how do you think about pricing loaves? Yeah, that's, there's definitely this tension between these two sides, which one, what you just described, you know, there, it's such a valuable skill product. It should be worth far more than most of us are able to say. And then this other part of it, where as a community, we all who are in the same, you know, occupations, we're all trying to give this value to this thing. And we all should give a similar value so that we're not undervaluing. So as I was beginning to price, I, like you said, was undervaluing what I was doing, which is then kind of undervaluing what other people who are doing the same thing are doing. If, you know, if someone can sell this loaf for $5, why would I buy it for nine? And if it's going to taste the same. And so I had to kind of get over that initial fear of saying, I'm creating something that's worth this much. And I had to remember my prices are going to also reflect and benefit or the opposite of the people around me who are doing the same thing. So it's constant, you know, it's kind of looking at what other people are pricing their loaves as, I have done price breakdowns for all of my loaves and it's, it's a silly, like bakers get paid. Like if you're doing sourdough, it's like $8 an hour or something crazy for the amount of hours that go into it, but it can't all be made up, you know, by this one loaf that should be worth $20. It's kind of the volume of when I'm in a season of making more, it's more in balance with maybe what the value of what I'm making is. And if I'm, making one loaf a week, which is not realistic, but that one loaf I would have spent 24 hours on, like I can't charge a couple hundred dollars for that. So it's, it's finding the right balance of producing enough for it to, to make sense to, you know, considering 
the bakers around me and what they're assigning value to their products is and continuing to acknowledge, especially the last few years, increases in ingredients, all of these things that we have to face. And I want bread to be very accessible to people, but I have to consider cost before I'm, you know, just giving it all away for free. So it's kind of finding the lines between all of these, all of these considerations. Yeah, it's complicated because I'm, uh, you know, uh, Americans, you know, one of our sicknesses is we're always looking for the lowest cost, but not thinking about how that the yeah. ripple effect of that for the food yeah. industry, for all these different industries. And so yeah. you know, I, I, and we also have to acknowledge that, you know, some people are, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and, you know, struggling to make ends meet. And do they have, are they thinking about a $24 loaf when they've got, you know, three kids at home? And so there's, there's a lot of variables there, but I don't think that the end conclusion should be. I'm going to undervalue the product that I've worked right. hard to produce. So, um, right, and I would say that the the great thing that's kind of been made available among smaller communities like this is the options for trading goods, services, all of that. Like, I always want to have an option for people who want what I have and who are not able to squeeze it into their reasonable budget. People here are makers and are offering lots of things, and the more that we can speak up about those things, the more that we can share that and make, you know, really reasonable trades while valuing both sides of what's being traded. Absolutely. So I found you through Instagram and Instagram is one of the most clou crowded spaces in terms of bread content. Yeah. How do you think about how you approach uh, creating a brand for yourself? Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's a very relevant question right now. I've gone through just in the last few months, some rebranding which was kind of initiated by a very sweet friend who is incredibly talented, but also was able to say, I saw your Instagram before I ever met you. And I had these thoughts about who you were based on what your Instagram was. And then I met you and I realized it didn't necessarily line up. There was maybe more quirkiness in the real life and like, I don't know, the opposite of that on Instagram. And I think accepting that whatever content I'm, putting out there is going to have a voice. It's going to determine what people are thinking, whether I'm intentional about it or not. And so I've always tried to have it be a space where I'm being, I mean, the line between my business, because especially it's happening in my home with my family, the line between my life, myself and my work is not always super clear. And that can come across in some of the things that I'm sharing on Instagram. And I think there is a vulnerability that feels very natural because it's being a bread maker is part of who I am and more than just the ways that I'm spending my hours on work days. So I'm taking, you know, this, I guess, opportunity to be intentional about what branding is going to be like. And also this kind of relief and break from thinking that that I have to like create this, I have to speak louder to figure out who I am or teach people who I am or what I do, kind of a decided branding is gonna do part of that for me and relieve some of that from, you know, what I'm what efforts I'm putting in. So there's there will always be my voice on, on Instagram in my own page. There will always be my my voice coming through what I'm what I'm putting up there. But it's also quite fun to kind of assign what that is going to look like and give, you know, a bit of 
a, a head start to people who are finding me on Instagram before knowing who I am in person. I can definitely relate to what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> and I, my last question before we get to books is if you could take out a crystal ball and just look um, maybe a 20,000 foot perspective on the baking industry, do you mm. think the future is more kind of independent operators like you with unique perspectives or is there still going to be a role for traditional bakeries? I think it's a long road to really make the full switch over. I have hopes that it would be a lot more independent um, bakeries. I mean, this is how it all started. You know, what I love about baking in my neighborhood is that I can be my immediate neighbor's bread baker, just as people would have had a long, long time ago. I mean, like thousands of years, people, bread has been this thing that you have very local. And I recommend that to everybody. I recommend that we all demand someone in our immediate neighborhood to become this bread baker and we can begin to change the way that bread is thought of in our culture. It's, you know, it's with, with diet culture and with sensitivities and allergies, it's not always something that people are wanting and looking for and valuing, but it's a really amazing, incredible part of a meal and an incredible process. So I think we kind of need to take it back and put it in the hands of the people who are thinking about that. I would love to see that switch over over time. Okay. Our last question, our last topic is always the same, which is book recommendations. What are three books? And these could be cookbooks or just books that are important to you that you'd share with listeners. Okay. I mentioned salt, fat, acid, heat, mm -hmm. informational. It's got recipes, but I could read cookbooks like novels. And that's the one that was really amazing. Oh gosh. There's this one that I just was thinking about yesterday it's like the the great Amer the real the real American breakfast. I forget if that's the exact title, but the authors, it's two of them, somebody Jameson and somebody Jameson. So let's just say it's the real American breakfast by Jameson and Jameson. The I used to go around and have I used to read the introduction to people or my husband reminded me yesterday that I used to request him to read it to me and it's just this beautiful reclaiming of breakfast as a meal and a practice in our country where like people will say it's the most important meal of the day and then we're like pouring a bowl of cereal and so <laughs> realigning the the breaking fast as like this very special meal to be like gathered that one was inspirational recipes are you know fine but if I'm reading like if I'm going to consume my cookbooks like a story which is kind of what I do then I, those two in general I love we've mentioned tartine bread. That's a great one. Again, as like reading through the recipes are great. The process is incredibly in-depth and scientific and can be quite confusing, but is a beautiful book with really thorough breakdowns into like the whole first section is just a bunch of people that Chad was like, Hey, try this recipe and log it for, you know, a couple weeks or whatever. So it's non-bakers and bakers alike who took on this country loaf recipe and started making it their own. And that, that was one of the influencing factors as I was kind of starting to do this just on my own. I'm right with you. I love reading cookbooks. The one that I'm reading right now that I'm loving is called Sada, the Art of Mexican Style Grilling by Brisha okay. Lopez. Uh, and it just, she put out a cookbook a while ago about Oaxacan cuisine. And I'm like one of those mm -hmm. standard white guys that loves mole and wants to yeah. read about it and stuff. Yes. Um, but yeah, this book is wonderful because it kind of, you know, it has pictures from actual barbecues where she's like making this food and like, you can mm -hmm. see like how the recipes are part of her life and you can yeah. feel it 
that they're just organically created. They're not in America's test kitchen, just like going like, yeah. here's how you introduce this to this. And it's like st <laughs> storytelling as well. Yeah. To close, where can people find find your website? How can they order bread? What kind of loaves do you have coming up? Just some kind of logistical information for people. Yeah, so my website is breadroombakery.com. Don't go on it yet because it is under construction. It's public, so I've actually found, a few people have found me recently through there and I just want to say, no, not yet, but someone's that working happens. on it. A friend who's incredibly talented is working on it now. We're, hopefully it will be, he's, you know, doing, he's on his own correct timeline and I am on, I'm lagging a little bit with getting some information to him, but we'll get that out probably during February. That should be more public. Um, Instagram for now is easy DMs for ordering. I've got a menu that I post every week in stories, save it to highlights. We'll be switching over to hot plate, which is an ordering system that I've been kind of putting off this transition for the last year and a half, just because of it, it's just feels overwhelming, although they made it really simple and it's not overwhelming. That'll be that. And then I am doing, what's the date? March 8th, which is International Women's Day. There is a pop-up at Moto Deli and I'll be doing a collaborative menu with Chef Lindsay there. And so that will be a place where you can come and you can order, you know, no pre-orders needed. Come and grab whatever I've got there and there'll be some other really great makers Wonderful. And what loaves do you have this week? This week, what are we in? We're the end of January. So it's final week of country loaf, cinnamon raisin, and olive. And all of those, those are, those might be the top three loaves. And I don't know why I put them all in the same month, but all three available. I try to keep ordering open until I do mixing on Thursday. I try to keep it open until Wednesday night so that people can have some amount of spontaneity and not just feel like they have to be so transactional and order their bread 30 days in advance and then get it when it's time. And I want them to just think like, hey, I want this loaf for this thing this weekend. Can I have one? And I just want to say, yeah, you can. Allison, this has been so much fun talking. You've helped me in more ways than you know, uh, mm -hmm. just by sharing your thoughts and process. Because um, a lot of us, you know, people that bake periodically or sporadically uh, mm -hmm. can feel kind of isolated in some ways in their bread mm -hmm. baking. And, you know, I think having a community in baking is so underrated. And uh, just having other people that you can share with, show, show ask questions. So I'm yeah. sure you've helped a lot of people listening as well. And I'm excited that, you know, you're here in Fresno and that you've come here and that you're going to share your work with us. So I appreciate that. So yeah, much. thank you, Jordan. I appreciate being on here and being able to connect with you and hear a little bit about your baking also. Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's best. We'll see you next time.